Good morning, Bethel Church. Almost good afternoon, right? All right, great, great. Uh, it's a blessing to be here on, uh, on today, and I'm excited about any time I get to come and share with the Crown Point uh, campus. Uh, we are uh, thankful for that opportunity to spend this time with you. And uh, as you heard during the announcements, uh, today the Gary campus is hosting the feast and um, you know, our prayer meeting, and you're all invited. That's, that's the important thing. You're all invited, but if you, if you are coming, bring something to eat. <laughs> Not going to guarantee that we, uh, we you know, it's got to be a little more than two fishes and five loaves of bread. I just... I may not be able to bless that and turn it into a lot. So, uh, so we leave those kind of miracles to Jesus. Amen? Amen. But uh, we thank, we're thankful. Uh, we hope that you all could uh, take some time, come down. If you haven't seen the Gary campus, we'd love to have you uh, come and fellowship with, uh, with us this evening. Our worship team is going to be, be sharing uh, as well uh, in the feast uh, time tonight. So we're excited about that. Uh, as you may know, uh, we are continuing in our series uh, entitled Matthew, the Gospel of the Kingdom. And I hope that this series has been uh, blessing your life and that you've really been growing from this series. Uh, I know I have been tremendously blessed in, in, in being in this, in this series. It's uh, good to be reminded of the great things that God is doing for us uh, and with us and through us uh, as we go through this series on the kingdom. So today, I want to prayerfully invite your attention to uh, Matthew chapter 13. We're going to read verses 1 through 9, but we'll be considering uh, quite a few verses in that, in that particular chapter. So open your Bibles or turn them on, whatever the case may be, and uh, let's, uh, let's get into the Word today. All right, so uh, reading from the English Standard Version of Scripture, uh, the Bible says this, that same day Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea. And great crowds gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat down. And the whole crowd stood on the beach and he told them many things in parables saying, a sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up, since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched. And since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. And so today, I would like to speak with you from this thought, or just ask this question, what kind of soil are you? What kind of soil are you? Now, I know that we don't normally come to church and be asked what kind of dirt we are, <laughs> but today we would want to delve into this and see what kind of soil are you? you. As we look at this, and in the interest, my brothers and sisters, of full disclosure, it's important for me to let you know that horticulture is not one of my gifts. <laughs> 
I mean, I'm so bad at this, at this plant and growing thing that, you know, I, I won't even buy a cactus. <laughs> I'm concerned that I might neglect to give it water and, and reduce the chance of a desert plant surviving around me. So, so I, I, that's, that's one disclaimer. And then I, I will give you another disclaimer, and this is for all the real horticulturalists and gardeners that are here in the audience today. You know that, and, and you know that real gardening involves more work than just looking up something on Google. So that's, that's kind of me. I would look it up on Google. But I did do some research on Google, by the way. <laughs> and, and I found some fairly interesting elements about soil that I thought might be helpful for the parable of the sower. Apparently, there are at least six different types of soil which most gardeners are aware. And this first type of soil is sandy soil. Sandy soil has the largest particles among the different soil types. It's dry and gritty to the touch. And because the particles have huge spaces between them, it can't hold on to water. Water drains rapidly in sandy soil, straight through to places where the roots, uh, particularly those of seedlings, cannot reach. Plants don't have a chance of using the nutrients in sandy soil more efficiently as they're swiftly carried away by the runoff. Now, the upside to sandy soil is that it's light to work with and warms much more quickly when the springtime comes. Another type of soil is silty soil. Silty soil has much smaller particles than sandy soil so that it's smooth to the touch. And when moistened, it's soapy and slick in your fingers. When you roll around between your fingers, dirt is left on your skin. Silty soil retains water longer, but it can't hold on to as many nutrients as you want it to. So it's fairly, uh, uh, even though it's fairly fertile. Now due to its moisture retentive quality, silty soil is cold and it drains poorly. Another type of soil is clay. And some of you may have heard of clay before. Clay soil has the smallest particles among the three uh, of so far. So it has good water storage qualities. It's sticky to the touch when wet, but smooth when dry. Due to the tiny size of its particles and its tendency to settle together, little air can pass through its spaces. Because it's also slower to drain, it has a tighter hold on plant nutrients. Clay soil is thus rich in plant food for better growth. There's another type of soil called peaty soil. Now, peaty soil is dark brown or black in color. It's soft, easily compressed due to its high water content and rich in organic manner. Peat soil, they say, started forming over 9,000 years ago with the rapid melting of glaciers. This rapid melt drowned plants quickly and, and they died in the process. Their decay was so slow underwater that it led to the accumulation of organic areas in a concentrated spot. Now, though peat soil 
tends to be heavily saturated with water. Once it is drained, it turns into a good growing medium. In the summer, though, peat could be very dry and become a fire hazard. I mean, who knew that soil could catch on fire? I didn't know that. So I'm sure many of you gardeners knew that. But they say that peat soil is the precursor to coal, so that kind of makes sense. Now, the most desirable quality of peat soil, however, is in its ability to hold water in during the dry months and its capacity to protect the roots of a plant from damage during the very wet months. Another form of soil is saline soil. Uh, the soil in extremely dry reason is usually brackish because of its high salt content. Known as saline soil, it can cause damage to install plant growth, impede germination, and cause difficulties in irrigation. Now, according to my extensive Google research, <laughs> the best type of soil is called loam, L-O-A-M. It contains a balance of all Three soil materials, silt, sand, and clay, plus hummus. It has a higher pH and calcium levels because of its previous organic matter content. Now that I've given you a eighth grade education on horticulture, let's talk about this and how it relates to our text today. So in discussing this biblical passage about planting a sower sowing seeds, it's important to know that Jesus recognized as well that there are many types of soil regarding the sowing of the spiritual seed, which is the Word of God. He was speaking here to a large group of people on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. Now, the crowd was so large that it forced him to stand in a boat just offshore so that they could teach them. So here's Jesus in this boat offshore. Now, I suppose, being the Son of God, that he could have just walked on the water, right? You could laugh at that. That was pretty funny, I thought. But then... <laughs> But no, no, he, he, he didn't do that because that would have been very distracting. So he didn't do that. So he, he stood in this boat, and he's standing there, and he's, and he's teaching them, and they're all assembled on the beach. So just imagine in your mind how many people. Think, think kind of our lake baptism. I mean, wouldn't it be cool if, you know, Pastor Steve stood out there in a boat and had a megaphone and started preaching? I don't know. I think that might be kind of cool, but... Uh, but, it, but it, you know, here, he, here he's teaching from this boat, and, 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 and it's important to know that the people wanted to hear what he had to say. So this passage here in Matthew 13 really begins the third major block in the teaching of Jesus. Now, the first one in Matthew was the Sermon on the Mount from Matthew chapter 5 through Matthew chapter 7. And the second large chunk or block of teaching of Jesus in the book of Matthew was his missionary discourse in Matthew chapter 10. And now he interjects the use of parables in order to teach us and his followers truths about the kingdom of God. Now, just as a reminder, for those of you who are joining this series for the first time or, you know, it's already in progress, here's a, here's a definition of what we mean by the kingdom of God from theologian Louis Burkhoff. Burkhoff says this, 
The primary idea of the kingdom of God in Scripture is that of a rule of God established and acknowledged in the hearts of sinners by the powerful, regenerating influence of the Holy Spirit, ensuring them of the inestimable blessings of salvation, a rule that is realized in principle on earth, but will not reach its culmination until the visible and glorious return of Jesus Christ. I like the way that Burkhoff said that. That describes this kingdom of God. So Jesus begins to teach about the kingdom here in Matthew 13 in a way that he had not previously done in Matthew's gospel. He is using a tool called a parable. Now, the Greek word for parable is parabole. It literally means a placing beside. It signifies a placing of one thing beside another with a view towards comparison. So if you want to compare something and saying the kingdom of God is like this, okay? So it's, it's, a, it's a placing of one thing beside another. And it is generally used of a somewhat lengthy utterance or narrative drawn from nature or human circumstances. The object of the parable is to set forth a spiritual lesson. So let us unpack this parable of Jesus known as the parable of the sower. Now there are three important elements as we break down this parable of the sower. Three important things that we should see. And even in them, there are some sub points that we want to share with you on today. And we'll be going all the way through to Matthew uh, chapter 13, verses 1 through 23, as we unpack this parable of the sower. The first thing we need to recognize here, uh, and I want you to see, is let's look at the context and the text of the parable itself. We want to go through that. So the setting and context for this parable follows a time period in the ministry of Jesus where he begins to encounter some degree of opposition. In chapter 12 and even in chapter 11, you could see the Pharisees seem to amp up their opposition to Jesus. Before that time, things seemed to be going along fairly smoothly. Jesus was going and crowds were following him and all these kind of things. And now these Pharisees are beginning to amp up their opposition. So in Matthew chapter 12, verse 1 and 2, we read this. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry. So they're walking through these fields uh, where grain is growing. And, you know, maybe it was Peter. I don't know. It could have been one of them said, man, I'm hungry. You know, and so they're looking at all this grain. So they began to pluck heads of grain and eat it. But when the Pharisees, verse 2, saw it, they said to him, look, your disciples are doing what it is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. They had this thing about the Sabbath. They had this thing about keeping the law. And they said, you can't harvest grain on the Sabbath. Don't you know nobody's supposed to be working on the Sabbath? And so down in verse 10, still keeping with that same kind of opposing idea, 
Verse 10 in chapter 12, it says, And a man was there with a withered hand. And they asked him, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? They were trying to set him up so that they might accuse him. And so here you have them saying, You can't harvest grain on the Sabbath, and you better not heal anybody on the Sabbath. Because they wanted to show opposition to his ministry. So that's kind of setting the background. And then you look in verse 12 or chapter 12, verse 14, you really get the real, the real thing that they're trying to do. It says, but the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. Anytime you stand for the word of God. Anytime you stand for the kingdom of God, let me just share with you, you're going to face opposition. There are going to be people and, and uh, uh, people who are designated to try to discourage you, to try to destroy your witness for Jesus Christ. Don't be discouraged by them. And so we look here back to chapter 13. Much of the crowd gathered before Jesus would have been a crowd that's, that's interested in anything to do with seed planting. Why? Because theirs was a predominantly agrarian economy, and successful farms meant wealth and substance for one's family. However, the farmers in the crowd would have known that farming, especially in those days, depended not only on the degree to which one worked. It didn't just depend on hard work, but primarily on having the right soil and the right conditions for growth. So many times in our lives, brothers and sisters, we intend success. That's our goal. Who doesn't want to be successful? But we're simply unaware that true success does not depend just on, how, on just how good we think our plan is. How many times have we made a plan? We sit down, we get that notepad out and say, here's what I'm going to do. And you start writing things down and here's my plan. And I'm saying, man, that's great. That's wonderful. But our plan doesn't depend on our intellect or the success of our plan. But it also and primarily depends on the will of a sovereign God. Proverbs 19 and 21 says this, Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. You think about that. You know, there's folks I've heard say things. I was in a conversation last week. Somebody said, you know, to me, I was talking to a brother out in front of a campus, and he, he said, man, I'm, I'm glad God is on my side. You know, God is on my side. And I said to him, I said, let me tell you something, brother. When God shows up, he doesn't show up to take sides. He comes to take over. <laughs> Amen. So God... His purposes make the difference in our life. So now, in the parable, as we unpack it, the, the context and the text of this parable, 
there are three elements or three things we see in this parable. First thing we see is the sower. Now, who is the sower? The sower is God himself, okay? There's so, there certain attributes we see about the sower that we can infer based on the context of what's going on here, okay? We're looking at what the sower does. So it tells us a little bit about the sower when we look at what the sower does in this text. The first thing we see, it says, the sower went out to sow. The sower went out to sow. So the first thing we see is that the sower in this text is persistent. We can infer that there's some persistence, that a sower understands this sower here, that you don't sow from inside the house. You don't sow from the comfort of your living room. But sowing seeds requires that you get out into the fields. Sowing seeds requires some persistent effort on your part. And just to throw this in for free, when you think about this, doesn't it make sense now that Jesus didn't try to save us by staying in heaven? But he actually left his home and came to where the fields were, where the hearts of men were, where there was need for sowing. So this sower here, God, was persistent. Now, the other thing that we see in the sower and, and his activity is that the sower was non-discriminating in his sowing. Now, what does that mean? It means that the sower sowed in four different types of soil. Even though the sower must have known that the chance for success sowing in the roadway was probably not good. The sower must have known that rocky ground probably wouldn't have a great chance of success or thorny ground would not have the great chance of success. But the sower sowed anyway and sowed and found the good soil. And so the sower did not discriminate. The other thing we find here about the sower is that the sower believed, and we can infer this, believed in the power of the seed. Because why else would a sower sow in places that were where success was unlikely? Imagine for a minute if God had waited to sow into your life when you were absolutely good ground. Some of us still trying to get there, right? <laughs> but God didn't wait. He sowed into your life even while you were thorny and rocky and even the roadway kind of soil. He sowed into your life anyway because he believed in the power of the seed. He believed in the power of his word to transform your rocky soil to good ground. The power of transformation of the gospel. And so this sower believed in that power of the seed. Now, the other thing we see is we see this element called the seed. The seed is the word of God. And we find some, elements, some attributes about this seed as well, just like we did about the sower. The first attribute about this seed that we can infer is that there was some nourishing element to this seed. Well, how do we know that, preacher? Well, here's how we know it. It says here that, that as he sowed some seeds, some fell on the path, and the birds came and devoured them. So at least the seed that hit the pathway was nourishment 
to the birds. So in nature, there was an impact of this seed. Now, the other thing we see about this seed is that, again, the seed was powerful. Even on rocky and thorny ground, it produced something. Look at this. It says, other seeds fell on rocky ground when they did not have much soil, and immediately there sprang up. So even on rocky ground, this seed was so powerful that something came up. The plant began to grow. And it says that when even among thorns, the plant grew up until the thorns came and choked it. And so the seed was powerful to produce what it was supposed to produce, even on ground that was not ideal for its production or for the production of, of, uh, of plant life. So the seed, the seed was powerful. Now, another attribute we see about this seed is that the seed or the Word of God was very productive in the right place. When the Word of God, when the seed, when it hit the good ground, it produced grain a hundredfold, sixtyfold, and thirtyfold. So there was production when the seed, the Word of God, hit the right spot. It was very productive. And so we see those attributes of the seed. Now, not only do we see in this text and context of this parable the, the, uh, uh, the sower and the seed, but we also see the elements of the soil. So we see the soil. Now, what kind of soil is, is available to us or, or, or readily, readily read here uh, when we look in this passage? The first kind is what I call kind of road soil. It was that pathway. Now, the pathway soil, the problem was the birds came and took it away. It was too exposed to predators, to things that would, would take it away from you. So the, the pathway soil was too exposed. Then there was this rocky soil. Now, the rocky soil, was a, the problem was that that the soil had no depth, and, and you could not get deep enough in order to maintain life. So the roots of the plant couldn't go down to get the necessary nourishment because the soil was too filled with rocks. So we say that rocky soil. And even in the, when we look at the rocky soil, that it, it didn't respond well, the plant, to the sun scorching because the rocky soil would not let the roots go deep enough. Then we see another type of soil. We see this thorny soil. Now this soil is, is mixed with something else. And so in the one hand, you see the seed planted, and then it begins to spring up, and then because there's something else in the soil that should not be there, the thorns, they come up and they choke away. They choke away the plant that's growing. And so the thorny soil chokes off the power to produce new life. So if we look at our lives and say, what kind of soil are we? I mean, is the thorny soil in your life, is it choking off the power of God to produce new life in you? Because we have too much allegiance to that, and we'll get into that a little later. But the other type of soil that we see here, is what's called good soil. 
Okay? Good soil. Good soil is that which is well balanced and prepared to nourish that which is planted. Good soil has everything it needs in order to provide for the growth of the plant. Good soil has been tended and cared to and made ready for the planting. It's been tilled. It's been watered. And the reason it's ready or what happens when, when good soil, it, 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 when it, what happens is that it produces much harvest. So when the soil is right, harvest comes. And the harvest is good. And the harvest is bountiful and plentiful. So Jesus tells us about these four different types of soil. Now, the other thing we see in this passage is not just unpacking the context and text of this parable itself. Jesus then begins to share, share with them the reason he spoke in parables, the reason for parables. Now, it was likely as we move through this, this chapter 13 that, that this account was a side conversation. After Jesus had finished his lakeside discourse, the disciples wanted to know why did he teach them in parables? Now, Jesus, you know, you got all these people out here and you know there are no theologians in the place. I mean, we're having a hard time understanding what you're saying. Why not just speak plainly? Why not just say what it is you have to say so that everybody can understand? And so Jesus has to share with them why he didn't speak to them plainly? Why would he use this comparison, this setting of one thing next to another in order to compare? Why would he do that? Why would he teach in parables? Now, what Jesus says next is a great indication of the sovereignty and the election of Almighty God. Look at verse 11. He answered them, and he said this, to you, it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. But to them, it has not been given. So what Jesus is saying here is that you who are my followers, I have given you the ability to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. But that's not for everybody. I've chosen you so that you can know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. I mean, that's powerful, isn't it? Isn't it powerful to know that when you become a believer, that means that God has chosen you to reveal in you and to you the secrets of his kingdom now, that ought not make you too proud. Don't get puffed up, you know, stick your chest out and all that. It's not what that's about. What it really should do is to motivate us in order to share the gospel with every person that we meet. Why? Because God had the audacity to trust me with the secrets of his kingdom. And I ought to tell everybody. 
about Jesus so they can know about the kingdom of God. So clearly, clearly Jesus wanted them to know that they were sovereignly selected to know the truth about the kingdom that others did not know, truth that others could not understand. They were told this truth by Jesus so they could understand and comprehend the nature of his kingdom. Now, if you're a believer in this place today, allow me to speak to your heart and to encourage your heart in the midst of a world gone mad with sin and the results that we see of sin. Know this, brother and sister, that God has sovereignly chosen you to know the truth. He has chosen those who believe to understand why the world is the way it is. Do not lose hope because of a charged political season. Presidents come and go, but the kingdom of God lasts forever. You don't have to be on social media losing your mind, <laughs> worrying about who's going to be the leader of the free world. You don't have to be there all panicky. And you see way too many believers in full-blown panic thinking in their minds, well, we got to do this because what about this and what about that? And that's going to happen and the sky is falling. Okay, Chicken Little, let me talk to you for a minute. <laughs> Did I say that out loud? I'm sorry. <laughs> Inside words got to stay in. <laughs> Look at this thing. Do you think that the God of heaven at any time seeds over control of his world to nine people in black robes on the Supreme Court? No, he does not. He is still the King of kings and the Lord of lords. We still call him wonderful, counselor, Prince of Peace, Mighty God. He is still the ruler, all the government. Watch this now. Isaiah got it right, didn't he? All the government shall be upon his shoulders, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. Stop fretting about the kingdom of man. You have a job to do. Win as many people to Christ as you can. Share the gospel with as many people as you can. Don't worry about desperate economic times. In the kingdom, one of the kingdom truths is this, that we don't have to worry about the economy and what's happening in our own lives and, and even desperate times financially. Let me tell you why. Paul put it like this in Philippians chapter 4 and verse 19 as he thought about perhaps his own life in terms of, 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 of poverty that he had faced in his life since he had become a believer. He wrote these words, and my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. You may not have everything you want, but God has promised you'll have what you need. And sometimes 
What you need is just enough to keep you praying. See, if God gave you everything you wanted, we have a tendency as human beings to get a little beside ourselves. <laughs> you know, we, we start filling ourselves, you know, just, oh, look at this. I bought this and I bought that. Look at my house. It's X number of square feet and all these kind of things. And God says, well, I got to make sure that you don't start taking credit for what I did. Amen. God said, I don't want you to, to I, I'm the one that provided those things. How dare we take credit for what God has done? That's going to be a lot of people in here tonight or today, this, this afternoon. You're going to go home and you're going to walk in your door and you're going to just pause for a minute and say, thank you, Lord. Amen. Thank you, Lord, that I have a house to walk into. Amen. That's right. That's a praiseworthy moment. Thank you, Lord. I have a roof over my head. I don't deserve it, but you provided it for me anyway. It wasn't my many years of hard work. It was your grace. So don't be afraid of the terror by night or the arrow that falls by, flies by day. The Lord strong and mighty, mighty in battle. And if you are in his hand, the devil himself cannot take you out. So Jesus wanted them to know the truth of the kingdom. And this is the reason why he spoke to them in parables to reveal truth to those who had an ear to hear, those who commit their lives to him and his will. And so he says this in verse 13 of Matthew 13. He says, this is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see. And hearing, they do not hear, nor do they understand. So he also spoke to them in parables to let them know what understanding this kingdom truth really meant. It meant that they were separate from those who were not his followers. There was indeed a distinction between those who trusted Christ and those who did not. So he says this in verse 16, but blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For truly, I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see, and they did not see it. To hear what you hear, and they did not hear it. So it is with those who follow Christ with all their heart today. We are indeed blessed to see what others have rejected and what some longed to see. So do not fret as to why the unrighteous do what they do. They are indeed blind to the kingdom realities and kingdom dynamics. They cannot see the way of righteousness without God opening up their eyes. It is for this reason we labor to share the gospel with all whom we meet. It's for this reason that we have motivation to tell people about Christ because everybody in here knows somebody in this state of spiritual blindness. And if you're not, if you don't know somebody, then I say, open your eyes. Look around you. Family members, loved ones, 
co-workers who don't know Christ as Savior need you who have been revealed the, 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 the kingdom truth to share it with them. So the last thing here, the last thing here, we've, we've seen the parable itself. We've seen the, the reason for the parables. And the last thing here is we want to know the parable of the sower and, and, and what it means. So here Jesus, Jesus explains the parable of the sower by sharing what happens in each one. First one is roadway soil. Okay? He says that these people didn't understand it. He said the evil one comes and snatches away what's been sown in his heart in verse 19. It is very important to recognize that hearing the word is not enough for the believer. Many hear and do not understand. We do not seek understanding. We fail to study God's word. Let me just share with you, if the sermon is your only encounter with God's word every week, then you are not delving into the word properly and you might be roadway soil. Then there's this rocky soil. Matthew 13, 20 and 21, as for the ground, as for what was sown on rocky ground, Jesus says, this is the one who hears it and immediately hears it, uh, uh, reacts with joy. Remember the joy you had when you first became a Christian? Where is it? Forty-some thousand people shouted, raise the W last night at Wrigley Field. That's right. They were excited. Cubs win. Cubs win. But we come into the house of the Lord and you tell us, hey, how about getting excited for Jesus? And we're like. But I want to tell you something. Maybe your enthusiasm has waned because there's been some things that have come. Your root didn't go down deep enough into the soil. Maybe you had rocks in your soil. Tribulation and persecution have caused you to lose your enthusiasm. Now, enthusiasm alone is not the test of Righteousness is not the test of true transformation. It's not enthusiasm alone. But the real test is how you stand in the storm. The real test is how you stand when the storms of life are raging. The real test is how you stand when problems are all around you. The real test is the fact that you can trust our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, no matter what the circumstance is. You're going to be tested as a Christian. James chapter 1, verses 2 and 4 says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect in your life, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Celebrate when trouble comes, because that means God is giving you an opportunity to grow. He's giving you an opportunity to be steadfast in your faith. He's giving you opportunities to strengthen your faith during your trial. And then there's this thorny soil. As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word. But the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches chokes it away. Now think about this. If you are so concerned about what's going on in your world, that you have placed your sociology ahead of your theology, then you've got a problem. You might be thorny soil. Thorny soil worries about what's in my 401k, what's in my bank account. Thorny soil worries about the cares of the world, who loves me, who doesn't love me. 
thorny soil will have the single person spend all their time on ChristianMingle.com. <laughs> you worried about somebody to love you, and you're missing the fact that you have somebody that loved you so much that he gave his life for you. But thank God, there's this good soil. This good soil. And as for the one that was sown in good soil, this is the one who hears the word, understands it, bears fruit, and yields hundredfold, sixty, and thirty. When your heart is prepared for the word of God, you don't come into the house of God all lackadaisical, like, oh, I, like I'm doing God a favor. But you enter into his courts with thanksgiving and into his presence with praise. You have prayer time set aside so that you and God can commune one and the other because all you're doing is saying, Lord, prepare my heart as good soil so that when I hear the word, it will make a difference. So what type of soil are you? Is your heart prepared as good soil? So that the gospel takes root in your life and produces good fruit. As believers, our calling is to produce fruit. But we cannot hope to produce as we should if we allow the trials of life, the distractions of the world, or Satan himself to lead us to be anything other than good soil. And if you have not received Christ as your Savior today, this is the time now to become good soil. This is the time to believe that he died for your sins and he rose again so that you might have an opportunity to be justified by your belief, by your faith in him. So I ask you again, what type of soil are you? I don't know about you, but I want to be good soil. I want to be good soil so that the word of God can Plant firmly in my life that I might not sin against him. I want to be good soil. How about you?